Well, as we enter 2023, the people have spoken. The culture has spoken. There was a, a, a vote that went out on the top 10 phrases or terms that should be banned, okay, that, that we just don't want to hear anymore. We're just kind of sick and tired of as Americans. So I'm just going to give you a few of them, okay? And you can tell me if you agree or disagree with what everybody's saying, but uh, inflection point, all right? We've reached an inflection point. We don't even want to hear that anymore, all right? Um, gaslighting is another one. No more gaslighting, all right? Moving forward. We're just tired of moving forward, tired of that phrase. And amazingly, amazing was one of them. No more amazing, just gets overused so much so that nothing seems amazing. And then the number one, though, the number one term that people just in America say, we don't want to hear this anymore, is the term GOAT, okay? Not the animal, the acronym, okay? Greatest of all time. So we were having this conversation as a family. In fact, we were in, in Iowa, we were, we were talking with Steph's family, and her great aunt was there. And Aunt Betty, she's 96 years old, and she's just so sweet, so kind, such a nice lady. Not because she's old, but because of Jesus. Anyway, we're, we're talking with her, just, and we're trying and through this list and explaining to her what goat meant, because she didn't understand, like, how come America is so upset at goats? Like, what have these poor animals done? We're like, no, no, no. It's the greatest of all time. It's the acronym. So we're, we're telling her and explaining to her, no, you know, sometimes it's used about athletes or maybe actors or influential people or things like this. And then just to kind of explain it to her, we said, in fact, Aunt Betty, in our family, you're the goat. Okay, you're, you're the goat, Aunt Betty. And she laughed and she had fun with it. But I think by the end of the conversation, she was ready for the term to be retired as well. <laughs> all right. But, you know, there's something about all of us that we do want greatness, don't we? That we want to pursue greatness. Like, no, nobody goes to med school and says, you know what? I hope I come out of this and I'm just like an okay doctor. Like, that'd be good. You know, no, no mom who's about to give birth just says, you know what? If I'm just a mediocre mom, that's good enough. You know, that's all I'm after. No, no teacher says, ah, I want to be average, right? No, whatever we do, whatever we want to give our lives to, we, we want to be great at it. And there's, that's right. There's, there's a goodness to that. The same thing was true of the disciples. They wanted to be great disciples. They wanted to be great followers of Jesus. We should aspire to the same thing. The problem is sometimes we're confused about what true greatness really is and how Jesus really defines greatness. He exposes all this as he teaches the disciples and explains to them how he values greatness and where you truly find greatness. I want to walk that through with you this morning as we continue in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50, John Mark writes, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not only me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, 
we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It would be better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So, Jesus is passing through Galilee again. And this time, he doesn't want anyone to know he's there. He doesn't want anybody to know he's around. He doesn't want a big deal to make a big deal out of it because he wants time simply with his disciples. He knows that his time on earth is now getting short. And really what Jesus is beginning to do is kind of wind down his public ministry. And he's really going to spend time investing in the 12. Because he knows at this point, these small, the small band of guys, they're going to be the primary ones who take his message forward after he is dead, risen, and ascended into heaven. And so he needs time to equip them to prepare them. First of all, he needs to prepare them for about what's to happen to him. His, his death, his resurrection, his suffering, all of this, because it's going to happen to him, yes, but it's also going to happen to them. And they need to understand the suffering and the death that most of them will die as well. And so he's taking the time just to focus on the 12. Jesus, he makes his prediction again about his death. He tells them about his death, his suffering, his resurrection. He tells them this again. The disciples, again, are just clueless. Okay? They, don't, they don't get it. Jesus is trying to explain. It's just over their head. They, they can't make sense of it. But this time, nobody steps up to ask any questions. Okay? You remember what happened, how that went last time? You know, Jesus is explaining how he's going to suffer and die. And then Peter speaks up. And Peter says to Jesus, no, no, Jesus, that's never going to happen to you. And how does Jesus respond? Get behind me, Satan. So maybe none of the guys wanted that kind of rebuke this time. So, hey, no, nobody's asking any questions. They don't get it, but they're just staying silent. Maybe they hear some of it, but ignorance is bliss. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to go any further into what Jesus is talking about here. I'll just kind of stay in my ignorance. That will be fine. Uh, for whatever reason, they don't speak up. They just stay quiet. Now, this time, though, as Jesus is revealing what's going to happen to him, he gives them an additional piece of information that he has not given them before. And he tells them that he's going to be delivered into the hands of men. Okay, that, that word delivered into, it, it has this idea of betrayal. That's actually how the NIV translates it, that Jesus is going to be betrayed and so this is what it, it's, it's this handing over, this betrayal, this deliverance that's taking place. Now, you would think that if you heard that, that you would maybe talk about that a little bit, right? 
Like, here's this great leader, this great teacher, this great rabbi. We've now recognized that he is indeed the Christ, the son of the living God. They've gotten to that point where they've rightly recognized Jesus. And now he's saying, hey, I am the Messiah, and I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be delivered. You would think that maybe that would be the topic of conversation, but it's not. Instead, the disciples are talking and having a conversation about who's the best follower of Jesus. You know, I think I'm the greatest follower. I mean, look how I'm following him. Surely I'm going to be recognized as the best disciple. I mean, this is what they're talking about. They're having an argument amongst themselves about who is the greatest disciple. Now, when they finally make it to Capernaum, Jesus asks them, hey, on the way, what were you guys talking about? Nobody speaks up. You know, not even Peter this time. I mean, Peter doesn't even like step up. Oh, here's what we're saying, Jesus. I, you know, side with, no, no, no. There's just this embarrassed silence. I think they all get it, right? They're just humbled. Man, we've just been talking about who's the greatest that whole trip. I mean, that that was the whole deal that we we were talking about. You know, the disciples, they have this propensity towards argument. We've seen it time and time again now. Just to kind of rehearse it with you, back in Mark chapter eight, they were arguing amongst themselves about who forgot the bread, right? There was just this feeding. They're going across the lake. There's no bread in the boat. And hey, who forgot the bread? Uh, and then just last week, we looked and the disciples, they're arguing with the teachers of the law because they could not exercise the demon out of this boy. So there's this argument that's taking place. Uh, we just read about it and we'll see again. They're arguing now with a successful exorcist, people who actually could exorcise demons, evil spirits from people. They're arguing with them. Um, next, uh, we'll see very shortly that they're going to argue with um, a woman who brings this extravagant gift towards Jesus. They're going to announce it as just wasteful exuberance in Mark 14. Um, and then the cons- this competitive spirit will come out again because uh, Peter will boast right before Jesus is is handed over that, hey, even if all the other disciples fall away, I never will in Mark 14. So we see this, this arguing over and over and over again, this propensity to wanting to be right and defend your position to say you're the best. And that's really what they're arguing about here is who is the greatest? Who's the best disciple? Do you see the tragic irony in all of this? The way that Mark paints the picture for us and kind of sets the scene, you get the idea. These guys are going from Galilee to Capernaum. They're on the way. They're just walking. Jesus has explained to them about what's going to happen to him, the suffering and the death that's going to happen. And so you get the idea that Jesus has moved on ahead of them. And he's walking in silence toward eventually his suffering and his death. At the same time, you get the idea that the disciples may be lingering back behind a little bit and they're just pushing and shoving and jockeying and just saying, no, I'm the best, no, I'm the best, I'm the best. I'm the best. And they're all arguing about who's the greatest while Jesus is headed toward the cross. And this, is the, this, this shows just how clueless these guys are and just how much they miss the mission of Jesus. And sometimes we do too. Because we get so caught up in our own ambitions or this and that, our definition of success, our definition of greatness, and we miss it. And so this opens the door for Jesus just to stop and to explain to his disciples, this is what true greatness really is. 
and you understand the gravity of it all because Jesus sits down to teach them. You know, for the most part, at this point, as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, a lot of the teaching has been just as you're walking along the way. As they're walking from one place to another, Jesus is talking to them, he's explaining things to them. To them. At this point, they, they make it to Capernaum, and Jesus waits to have the conversation till they're there, and then he stops, and he sits down, and he teaches them. He's just looking them in the eye. He's wanting them to make sure that they understand what true greatness really is because they don't get it. They have these illusions of grandeur. They want people to come and to serve them. They think, oh, Jesus, he's gonna bring his kingdom right here to earth. He's the Messiah. You know, Roman occupation is gonna be a thing of the past. You know, the Jews will rise up. Israel will be great and we're gonna be the leaders in the kingdom and these people, they're gonna serve us. And Jesus is trying to get them to understand, no, no, no. Greatness is you serving others. You laying down your life for others. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay down my life for others. I'm going to sacrifice myself for others. And that's what I'm calling you to. To look not to how you can be served, but to think how can I serve others? And to reinforce this lesson. Somehow there's a child in the midst and Jesus brings the child and he puts the child right in front of them. Now, we need to understand this like with the cultural eyes that they would have seen it. In, in our culture, in the American culture, oftentimes it's the child who is honored in a household, right? We, hey, everything is for the child. We sacrifice ourselves so that you know, our children can have a better life than we have. We wanna make sure they can do this, that, and the other thing. And, it's, and, and child oftentimes can become the focal point of the family. In those days, it was not like that. It was the father who was the focal point of the family. The child essentially had no rights. They were not seen as just like obedient, pure, innocent. That, that was not the idea of child. It, it is oftentimes in our culture. It's, it wasn't there. You know, the point that Jesus is making by bringing this child in front of them was, hey, here's a needy one. Here's a lowly one. Here's an insignificant one, an ignorant one, one who's dependent, who has basically no rights and is dependent upon other people for everything. And when you welcome somebody like this, when you serve somebody like this, when you value someone who is seen as lowly, who is seen as insignificant, when you lay down your life for somebody like this, that's greatness. That's, that's what I esteem. That's what I look forward to. When you look to people and you serve people who everyone else just looks past and just looks over, diminishes for whatever reason, that is great. Now, I think much of that. And so we, we understand that we find greatness in serving, not in being served. We find greatness in serving, not in being served. Now, our culture says, hey, those who make it to the top and they're served and you know, all these people, they do whatever they want. There's authority, man, they are great. And Jesus, it's not how I value greatness. It's not what I look at and say, oh man, they're great because everybody does whatever they want. No, I value greatness when I see people giving their lives away for other people. That's great. And so the disciples, they've mistaken their own self-importance, right? They think that, hey, we're gonna be great. People are gonna serve us. This is what's gonna happen in the kingdom. It's gonna be great. If you have a church like this, it's not gonna go well, right? 
If, if, if a church were to function that way, and we all want, hey, we want to be great because we want everybody to do what we want. We have these needs, somebody should meet them. It doesn't go well. Churches function best, families function best when it's how can I serve the family? How can I lay my life down for other members of the family? What can I do for them? Never what can they do for us? And it's an important distinction because when it gets the other way, what can they do for us? It's just pride. It's simply pride. So we have, uh, as followers, we serve without any regard to status. It's not about who's significant, who, who need, no, no, no. It's, it's not about who's powerful. It's simply, man, this person's a, a, a God's creation. Uh, Mark paints this picture for us that, there's, that the kingdom of heaven, there is no like kingpin or some awesome person that everybody else just has to answer to as far as humanity goes. It's not like that. And at the same time, there's no like non-entity where, oh, you know, they made it, but it doesn't really matter. You know, we just kind of overlook them. No, there's, there's an equality at the, at the foot of the cross, as we sometimes say, but, there isn't, but it is literally true that we all find our significance in Jesus. And what that does is it ought to evoke this response of repentance. God, forgive me for when I valued or chased after success and my own ambition and my own, and, and I want authority, I want power, I want people serving me. And then it auto off also evoke this idea of humble service. Man, let, let me serve others. Let me love others. The disciples, they, they're not getting it though. And it's a hard lesson to learn. Sometimes we don't learn it the first, right out of the gate either. And we see that they don't get it in the very next scene. Because the scene, it takes this ironic twist. You remember last week, the disciples, we talked about it, the disciples, they're having this argument with the teachers of the law because they could not cast out this demon out of this child. Okay? So now we come next week, and Mark, he paints the picture. What happens now? Well, there are these other exorcists, these unknown exorcists, who are casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And the disciples, they're having none of that, Right? And so John, he even boasts, he's like, Jesus, I went to these guys. I told them they need to stop. He needs to, he needs to stop doing this. He's not one of us. He's not been following us. He needs to stop. And Jesus says, no, why, why are you rebuking him? Why are you telling him to stop? He's doing things in my name. He's doing things in my name. Is he then just going to turn around and like curse me? No, he's not going to speak evil of me. He's doing things in my name. And yet your propensity is just to want to shut him down because he's not one of us. Do you see, what, you see the mindset of the disciples? Hey, we're the great ones. We're, we're, we're in the band here. We're in the club. And if you're not in the club, you really can't do anything, right? We got a copyright here on the name of Jesus. You, you, need, to, you need to apply to be in the club if you want to, if you want to be using his name and, and doing things like that because you don't fit in. You're, you're not great, and Jesus is trying, no, 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 no. You, just because it doesn't look the way you think it should look or you don't know them, uh, that's not a reason to, to cast them aside. Well, our responsibility as believers is to pursue harmony with others. We pursue harmony with others. And so that means that sometimes things don't look the way that we maybe think they ought to look. I think one of the most beneficial practices that 
that you can do if you ever get the opportunity is, is just to go on a overseas somewhere and worship with a church family somewhere other than America and just step outside of your own culture and see how, how they worship there because it's different. You know, I remember worshiping in India and being in a church there and everyone just during the singing time, everyone just standing up and they're dancing. They don't dance the way that we dance, or even if you go to like a charismatic church in America, it's, it's not like that. It's a different type of dance, but they're all dancing. You know, I, I tried to a little bit, but it was really awkward. Um, you know, in Sierra Leone, uh, you know, I've been to Africa numerous times, and over there, when you enter in a worship service, all the men sit in one section, all the women sit in another section, and all the children sit in another section. It's very different, but it's still good. Right? And uh, worshiping with uh, people from the Ukraine, uh, whenever you pray, you always stand up. Okay? Whenever somebody prays, immediately everybody stands up. It's just custom. It's, it's tradition. These disciples have their own traditions. And they think that if you don't conform to our traditions, if you don't do things the way that we think they ought to be done, well, it can't be good. And sometimes we think the same thing. That, hey, if it's not of our church, well, it's really not good. You know, because we get competitive. We, we can sometimes view other churches as competition. We're all on the same team. As long as we're proclaiming and believing in Christ alone, we are all on the same team. And so this is the point that Jesus is making. You pursue harmony with others. We really are on the same team. Now, there is a word of caution to all of this. Because we must also have discernment, right? It, it doesn't mean that just because somebody says Jesus, well, they're good, okay? We know plenty, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, we know plenty of people who will say Jesus. But what may they mean by Jesus is something totally different than what we mean by Jesus. Um, we see the same thing in the gospel, okay, or in the book of Acts, specifically Acts 19, the sons of Sceva. They're claiming the name Jesus in order to try to do these miracles. The church is not so tolerant of them. The church doesn't just come alongside and say, well, you're saying Jesus, it's all good. No, they put a stop to it. They put an end to it because these, these, uh, these guys are evil. Now, they were unsuccessful in what they were trying to do. And so that raises another question, well, if you're successful and you use the name Jesus, do we support you? And if you're unsuccessful when you use the name Jesus, do we not support you? No, no, no. That's not the point, right? You can say the name Jesus and on the outside, things could appear good, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they are. Uh, there, there is discernment that must take place. I think two primary kind of helps when you're trying to exercise discernment is first of all, uh, just kind of checking your motives behind it. What is my motive for being skeptical of this? Is it because like, they just, it's a different tradition? It's a different way of doing things? Is it because they, they make me uncomfortable? Is it a competitive spirit? Are you jealous in some way? Is, is it just preference? If it's any of that, that's all pride. Okay? That's simply pride. As long as they're not violating scripture, that's simply pride. The second thing in being discerning is uh, understanding that we have a common enemy that our enemy is Satan, okay? The, the person doing it, even if what they're doing when they're claiming Christ, even if they're totally off base, they're not the enemy. They're the mission field. The enemy, whether they realize it or not, 
is Satan. It's their enemy, it's our enemy. And so it puts things in perspective so that we're not demeaning the person, right? We're not just tearing down the person, but we're trying to speak truth and love and lovingly rebuke where it's necessary, but it's not rebuking the person, it's their actions, it's their beliefs. So, also in this, just another, this is a a bit of a tricky section, because then you have this other phrase that Jesus says, and and it gets misinterpreted and misapplied all over the place, and it's this phrase, whoever is not against us is for us. And tragically, I've heard a pastor take this and rip this totally out of context, and just kind of come alongside and try to comfort a family who has lost a loved one. And they said, well, hey, this guy who died, he had no fruit of a relationship with Jesus. There was nothing about his life that they know of, that he ever claimed Christ or anything like that. But he never denounced Christ. And so the pastor used this verse. Hey, he's not against us. He wasn't against Jesus, so he's for him. Listen, the breadth of Scripture the totality of scripture, you're able to look and you're able to see how does salvation take place? This is not a statement of salvation. Salvation takes place by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. This is not what Jesus is talking. He's not talking about salvation. What he's talking about, what Mark is writing about here is this context in a context of bitter persecution. Jesus is preparing his disciples for a day of terrible persecution when it's going to be awful for Christians, and it would be, okay? The Romans would hate Christians. The Jews would hate Christians. Culture would hate Christians. It was going to be really, really bad for, for Christians at, at, at the birth, with the birth of the church. Jesus is preparing them for that. Now, in that context, it's, it's almost difficult for us to understand because we don't live in a context with this type of bitter persecution. I think perhaps the best way I could explain it to you was if you've studied World War II and you know what happened to the Jews in Nazi Germany and the persecution that they were under then, then you also know that there were Germans who took in Jews into their homes and they hid them. They risked their lives to do this. Now, they had neighbors. Some of those neighbors they kept their mouths quiet. They didn't turn them in. They didn't say, hey, that family across the street, I know they're housing Jews, you need to go get them. No, they just didn't say anything. They looked the other way. Now, if you're a Jew in Nazi Germany and you're being hidden in a house and the neighbor across the street just doesn't say anything, when they, hey, do you know anybody who's housing Jews? No, I don't know anybody. If they're not against you, they're for you, right? This is the context that Jesus is talking about. In this type of bitter persecution, when all of culture is going to turn against Christianity, hey, if they're offering you a cup of cold water, it's almost, it's seemingly neutral in any other context. But in the context of like hostile opposition, man, they're for you. They're for you. It might just be a small thing, but it's, it's, it's a good thing. It, it demonstrates a type of belief, a type of faith. And so Jesus says, hey, you know, this is good, but you must get the context here. Jesus, he then shifts to this whole idea of how uh, what you do matters. How you live matters. If you claim Christ, you're in a fishbowl, 
okay? If you say that you believe in, believe in Jesus, people have certain expectations of that. Uh, sometimes right expectations, sometimes wrong expectations, but expectations nonetheless, and they're watching you. They're watching how you live. They're watching how you respond to hard circumstances. They're, they're listening to how you talk and the content of your conversation. They're watching when things go wrong. Do you just kind of, or bad, or things are hard? Do you just complain? Do you get bitter? Do you throw in the towel? Or, or do you still have joy? Is there still an optimism in how you live? People are watching. Most importantly, young people are watching. Children are watching. And Jesus, he gives this instruction to the disciples. If you're leading by the content of your life, if you're causing children and you're impacting their faith in a negative way, it would be better if you had a millstone hung around your neck. Because I take very, he takes very seriously who he made us to be. He didn't just save us then to like, hey, go live however you want. It doesn't really matter. No. He's put his name on you. And you know what that's like, right? If you've ever had to be a reference for someone, and okay, they're, they're asking me to be, it's, it's an honor to be a reference for somebody. But if you put your name on them and you say, yeah, I highly recommend this person for the job. And then they get the job and they just like are totally lazy and they do a terrible job. And they don't really do anything. Well, that comes back to you, right? And you're frustrated by it. And you say, I put my name on this person. You know, I signed off. I, I, gave them my, my, I gave my word to their boss that they were going to do a good job. And they, and they work like that? This is the idea that Jesus is having here. I'm putting my name on you. I've called you to live in such a way that you're a representative of me. This is who you're to be. And if you're not, if, if this is not coming out, if there's sin in your life that is affecting this, you need to take that sin extremely seriously. And so then he uses this ghoulish imagery. You know, you chop off limbs, you tear out eyes. Whatever is causing you to sin, you take sin so seriously, you, you, you're done with it. Now the church father Origen he took this command of Jesus so seriously that he castrated himself. Uh, now, people have said, well, you know, that's a little overboard. I, I tend to agree. Uh, however, however, you don't want to mute the, uh, the punch that Jesus is trying to pack here, okay? He, it, this, this, these phrases, this statement, it is meant to sting, all right? And so sometimes we get, well, Jesus is just using hyperbole and just kind of brush it off and move past it. No, there, there is this idea that you take sin very seriously. Be very serious about sin. Why? Because people are watching. Children are watching. People are watching. And if you so tarnish your reputation and people don't take you seriously anymore. If the salt loses its saltiness, if you're no longer adding flavor, creating thirst, creating desire for Jesus to live like him, to know him, to be defined by him, well, how do you regain that saltiness? It's very, very difficult, right? And so this is that whole idea, how you live is so important because he's created us with purpose. He's given us a reason for being. He's put his name on us. He wants us to walk in step with his spirit so that we're leading others to love him and to serve him. And how does that get fleshed out? Well, it's the fruit of the spirit. It's this life of joy and love and peace and gentleness, 
all these things. This whole section, as you go through it, it really is all about what true greatness looks like. And by the time you get to the end of this, you see that, wow, our inclination really is toward being served rather than serving. Our inclination really is toward defending ourselves and having arguments and making sure that we're right rather than pursuing harmony with people. And our inclination is to minimize sin, to try to take the sting out of it, to reduce the guilt from it, to try to convince ourselves that it really wasn't so bad, rather than being very serious about the sin in our life. And so by the time you get to the end of it, you realize that Jesus really is the goat. You know, he's the greatest of all time, and he is the only one who is great, because he's the only one who's lived this life the way it's meant to be lived, perfectly perfectly pursuing harmony, not having arguments, but, but pursuing harmony with people and taking the sin in the culture and dealing with it, speaking truthfully and honestly to people. You know, he's done that for us. And most of all, he's demonstrated his greatness by the way he served and that he laid down his life self-sacrificially for us. He alone is great, but he shows us what greatness looks like, and how we should pursue greatness in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that your son Jesus is great. So great that he could do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He could fix our sin problem. He could restore our relationship with you. So God, help us to live lives that are marked by his greatness that God, when you put our, your name on us through your son, God, that we would then live and step with your spirit so that we would not cause others to stumble or sin, but that they too would want a relationship with you to be defined by you. We recognize we need your help to live this way. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.